those games. And so they went to Chicago with a two-game to nothing lead. And if you follow baseball and are familiar with baseball, the World Series is a best of seven series. And so the first team to win four games is the champion. And so it comes down to the Chicago Cubs and the New York Yankees. The Cubs fans were big time heckling Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth was playing in his 10th World Series, which is pretty wild. It turned out that it would also be his last World Series, but he was playing in his 10th World Series. And the Cubs fans were letting him have it. He hit a home run in the first inning, and ever since then, they were just riding him hard, just yelling at him, heckling him as much as they can. But what was also interesting about this World Series is that the other Cubs players, right? It's typical that the fans yell at players that they don't like, but the other players in the other dugout were heckling. The fifth inning, Babe Ruth comes to bat. It's a tie game. It's four to four. The Cubs are down two games to nothing. It's important for them to try and win this game and try and get back in the series. And the first pitch is called a strike. And he doesn't like that. He thought it was kind of a questionable call. Probably should have been a ball. And so he's looking at the ump and, and the other Cubs players in the dugout are kind of like heckling him. Like, come on, big boy, swing the bat, you know. And so he st steps back in the box. And the next pitch, it's a called strike again. And he didn't like it. He thought, come on, that's not a strike. That's not a strike. And so they're heckling him. They're giving him a hard time. And Babe Ruth stands there and points out towards center field towards the flagpole past center field. And the next pitch comes in. It's a curveball, and he crushed the ball. And where did it go? Right over that center field wall, right past the flagpole. There was a guy, Joe Williams, who was writing for the Scribs Howard newspaper, and he wrote an article after that game titled, Ruth Calls Shot as He Puts Home Run Number Two in the Side Pocket. And in that little article, here's what he said. In the fifth, with the Cubs riding him unmercifully from the bench, Ruth pointed to center and he punched a screaming liner to a spot where no ball had been hit before. It was a monster home run. It gave the Yankees the lead and the Yankees would end up sweeping the Cubs in that World Series. But that play, when Babe Ruth was getting heckled to no end and he just simply points out there to center field, and then the very next ball, he hit right in the spot where he said he was going to hit it, has become famous. As soon as I pointed out past center field, y'all knew what I was going to say next. Everybody has heard of Babe Ruth's called shot. And I remember as a kid being into baseball, anytime you'd get together with some kids and you're just playing in a backyard or something, some kid always, when they get up to bat, they point out to center field, they call their shot, and then they probably strike out. But everybody knows about Babe Ruth's called shot. And to think about Babe Ruth calling that shot, he had to be pretty confident. Now, granted, this was his 10th World Series that he's been playing in. He's no scrub. He knows how to play baseball. And from us, who are living well past his lifetime, we still look back at Babe Ruth and consider him one of the greatest who's ever played the game of baseball. But he had confidence. And he knew that if these guys are gonna ride me, I'm gonna show them a thing or two, and I'm gonna show them where I'm about to put this next baseball. And he did just that. Now, if he just swung and missed on the next shot, on the next pitch, nobody would remember it. But he hit that ball, and he had the confidence and maybe a little bit of arrogance to do that, 
But we all know that sometimes confidence is a really, really good thing. As I think about raising my own children, I want them to have confidence. I don't want them to be timid or to think that they don't know or can't handle themselves. I want them to have confidence. Now, we also know that there's, that can go to an extreme. And confidence can become arrogance pretty quickly. We're not talking about arrogance. We don't want to celebrate arrogance. But we, we want to think that confidence is a good thing. We want to have confidence. And John here, as he's going to wrap up this book of 1 John, John wants Christians to be confident Christians. He wants those of us who are believing in Jesus to be confident in the way that we live our lives. And that's what he looks at today. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. If you have your Bible open there, and we're going to begin in verse 13 and read down through the end of the chapter. 1 John 5, chapter, or verse 13. Here's what John says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, it's important that we understand here that John's letter here, this letter of 1 John, is different from his gospel in a big way. In John's gospel, John is writing to be evangelistic. And the summary statement in John's gospel is, I'm writing so that you would believe in the name of the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in his name. That's basically his summary statement in the gospel of John. And so John sums up at the end of his gospel that I've written all of these things about Jesus and his life and his ministry, about his life, his death, his resurrection. I've written them so that you would believe. John's encouragement there is that he wants people to walk away from reading his gospel and to believe in Jesus. And by believing, you will have life in his name. The summary statement here in his, the smaller letter of 1 John is a little different. Verse 13, let's read it again. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Okay, so he's not writing to people who don't already believe. He's writing to people who are already believers. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. From the beginning of our passage here, 
John is making it clear he wants us to be confident of our eternal security. He wants us to know what awaits us after this life. John is writing specifically to Christians who are already following Jesus. And he's saying, the reason that I'm writing is so that you would know what is coming for you. You would know what awaits you after this life. And that is eternal life. John wants us to be confident of what awaits us. Do we think or do we ever spend time thinking about what awaits us after this life? I talked about it on a Wednesday night not too long ago because I had just done two funerals that the two days before. I did a funeral that Monday and a funeral that Tuesday. And I was thinking so much about the reality of death. And when I preach a funeral, I'm trying to give comfort to the people who are there, the people who are still alive, and to get them thinking, your day will come. You will die. Will you be ready for it? And the answer that the Bible gives is to trust in Jesus. And John is saying, I'm writing to you who are already believing because I want you to know. I want you to be confident of what awaits you after this life, and that is eternal life. I know oftentimes, as I walk through life, when circumstances get hard, when people get sick, when things don't go the way we like, it's easy for us to get down It's easy for us to get upset. It's easy for us to get into bad mood because we are so tied up in our our experience right here and right now. It's good for us to be reminded of what awaits us after this life. That is eternal life where sin is gone. It's dealt with. It's no more. There's no more crying or sadness or tears. All of that will be wiped away. It's good for us to think about eternity. It's good for us to think about eternal life. And then from there, John goes straight into talking about praying. Look with me at verse 14. I want you to see how now John is, he's concerned with our confidence. He wants us to be confident that we have eternal life. And now he shifts that confidence into praying. And this is our first point this morning. Praying with confidence. So if you have a listening page That first blank, praying with confidence, option C. Verse 14 and following, he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John here goes quickly from, I want you to be confident of your eternal life, confident of what awaits you, to now, what do we do with this confidence? Well, he shifts specifically to praying. Now he says, and he points, he words this very specifically, he says, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay, so that's one thing. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's good to know that God hears us. But then he says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. So John makes it sound like as long as we ask anything according to God's will, we're going to get it. We're going to receive that. This is 
kind of controversial for us. This is hard for us to kind of fathom because when we think about if you tell me I can ask for anything I want, my imagination can go pretty wild. I can think of some pretty big things that I would like. Okay, now it's important that we understand that John is not just making this up. Okay, and John has not just thought, hey, you know what? I'm gonna tell people that, it, you know, you just pray for whatever you ask and God's gonna do it. He's not making this up. John has been taught this. Okay, if you look back to John chapter 14, John was taught this by Jesus himself. John chapter 14, and here's what it says, verses 12 and following. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So John did not make this up. John was taught this by Jesus himself, saying, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This is right after he had washed their feet. This was right before he was going to the cross to die for their sins. He is telling them that he is going to go away, that the Holy Spirit will come. And he's saying that you're going to do these greater works than that I've, that all the works that I've done, you're going to do greater works than these. And then he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so John was taught this by Jesus. And he is now teaching the next generation of believers, the next generation of those who are following after Christ. John wants us to pray the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Ask anything according to his will and he will hear us. Now, this is interesting. It almost sounds like a name it and claim it theology. Y'all have heard some of that before? Some of these preachers on TV, they talk about if you just speak it into existence, it's going to happen. If you just pray for it, it's going to happen. And oftentimes, the motivation behind all of that is selfish, right? Praying for what you want, praying for what you would like to see happen, and the promise is that it will that's not what John is, is teaching here. And if our first thought when we think, I can pray for anything, is to think selfishly, we're mistaken. This whole book of 1 John, John is talking about what four-letter word? Love. Love. Matt had a sermon, what, was it last week? Uh, he had four points, and apparently the first one started with L, the second one started with O, V, and E. So his four points spelled out the word love. I didn't even notice that. He had to tell me later. But the whole point of the whole book, John is talking over and over and over again that we are to love one another, that we are to love the brothers. John is so concerned with that because Jesus was concerned with that. Jesus taught the disciples, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. And so he's concerned with it. Now notice the next example, verse 16. So now he's just said this great big statement that he was taught by Jesus that if you ask anything in my name, I will do it for you. But now look at how he applies it. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, 
he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. John is teaching us that our first response to sin within the church is to be praying for one another. And he says that right after he says, when you pray, ask for anything according to God's will and it will be done for you. That is praying with confidence. And he is saying, now let's apply it practically. Let's apply this in real life. When you see a brother committing a sin, what should your response be? Pray. Ask God. And what will God do? God will give him life. John Stott says, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or by bending his will to ours but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, that we embrace it and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. When we pray, we should be praying specifically and confidently for the things that God has told us he wants to do. We know that God desires to see people come to faith in him. We know that. He desires that all would come to faith, that all would believe. And so when we pray to that end, we can be confident that God is going to do it, that he is going to save people. He is going to make people alive who were previously dead. Do you pray specifically for the people around you, the people in your life, the people in your influence I was convicted by this this week as I thought about the neighbors that we have. We've got some great neighbors. I've probably told you all some stories about our neighbors before, but they're so kind, they're so generous. They go out of their way to help, to be uh, sweet to us. Am I praying specifically that God would save them by name? I walked into my son's Sunday school class months ago and on the board there on the little chalkboard, one of the people that I guess he had asked to be put on there was our neighbor. And I see his name, Mr. Mike. It's awesome that my son has gotten to know my neighbor and has thought, I want my Sunday school class to be praying for him. God works through the prayers of his people. Are you praying specifically that God would save the people around you? Are there people in your life that you wish with all, of your, with all of your heart that they would come to faith in Jesus, that they would become a believer? Are you praying for them? John says, ask whatever you will, according, ask whatever you want according to his will and he will do it. Now we don't have a time frame. He doesn't say, well, it'll be done by you know, this, this amount of time. When, when this amount of time is elapsed, he'll make sure it gets accomplished But he's saying, pray whatever you will, and it will be done. All right, there's no selfish ambition here. John is not thinking as he's teaching us to pray, ask whatever you will, thinking that we're going to say, oh, well, let me just pray for whatever I want. John's whole thought is that we are going to be praying for one another, praying for those around us, that God would work and that God would save and that God would change hearts and minds. Now, 
when we read this section, I know that y'all came away with a question. And that is because John deals with something that's kind of hard in in this section. He says, if you see a brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, pray for that. Okay, but then he says, there is sin that leads to death. And I do not say that anyone should pray for that. So what in the world is John talking about here? Well, John is is, is concerned that we pray for those who are committing sins that do not lead to death. Okay, so that's the question is, what is the sin that does not lead to death? And then what is the sin that does lead to death? Well, we all know that all of us are sinful. Okay, John even says, look over at chapter one. Verse eight, 1 John chapter one, verse eight. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John knows from the very beginning, he's making it very clear, all of us sin, okay? So we're all guilty of sin. He then goes on to say in verse nine, if we can confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we're all sinful, we all know that. So then the question is, well, what is the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death? And I think we need to address this question of what is the sin that does lead to death first? Well, in the Gospels, we learn about the, um, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, okay? And this sin seems to be when the, uh, the Pharisees are seeing the work that Jesus is doing and they're crediting the devil for what Jesus is doing. Giving credit to the devil for what God has done by his power. And he is saying this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay? And he says that that is an unforgivable sin. And so the question that lots of people have wrestled with for a very long time is, well, what exactly is this unforgivable sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what I think, and what I would explain it as, would be a rejection of God and the work that he is doing through the Holy Spirit and embracing sin. I think that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're blaspheming the work that God is doing, the work that the Holy Spirit is doing to draw people to himself, and you're pursuing after sin instead. And so, in John's context here, he gives an example. I want you to look back at chapter two. In chapter two, uh, verse 18 and following. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So in these verses, John deals with some issues. There are people who were part of the church. It looks like they belonged to the church. They were involved, they were there, and they went out from them. And then what he says is they did not continue with us. He said, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. The mark of a true, genuine believer is endurance, is that you continue believing to the end. There are lots of people, there are lots of examples of even prominent Christian examples in culture that they have looked so convincingly that they are following after Christ only to a little bit later, years down the road, completely walk away completely abandon Christ, completely forsake his name and follow after sin. And I think that is what John has in mind when he says that is a sin that leads to death. Forsaking Jesus, forsaking the Holy Spirit, forsaking God and walking after sin, that is a sin that leads to death. And we're talking spiritual death, eternal death. I think that's what John has in mind when he's saying that he doesn't recommend that we pray for those who are committing sin that leads to death. But then what is this other sin? What is the sin that does not lead to death? And this, I think, quite simply is sin that we all fall into. All of us fall into sin at some time in our life. We are not immune to it. We do not believe that we become perfect at any point in our life until we receive our glorified bodies. And so we all struggle with the reality of sin. We know this, but we also know that as believers, we have an advocate. As John said earlier in chapter one, if anyone sins, let him confess it. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. So we know that we're gonna fall into sin. We know that we're gonna fall short and do what dishonors God. And the response should be to pray for one another. Along these lines, John Stott said, the way to deal with sin in the congregation is to pray. Unfortunately, we see quite often when someone in the church or someone in a, a congregation falls into sin, the people tend to talk about it more than pray for it. We tend to gossip rather than pray. And sometimes we even use prayer requests as a, a shield for our gossip. Oh, well, we're just letting everybody know what's going on so they can pray informed. Our response when someone sins in the church should be to lovingly pray for that person. Not just say that we're gonna pray for them, but actually pray for them. Pray confidently that God would restore them. Pray confidently that God would help them to turn away from their sin, to repent of their sin. We so often pray in such a way that there's really like, you know, if, if you were to tell me what you want me to do, 
the way you pray, I would have no idea because we often pray like this. God, we would love it if you did this, but if you don't, we understand. And if you do this, we, we understand. We don't know your ways. So, so Lord, do whatever you want, whatever you will. We often pray like that. And John is saying we, we can pray specifically. We can pray for specific things. And when, especially in the context of the fellowship of the believers, we should pray that God would restore us when we sin. If I see somebody in this room sin, if I am aware that someone has fallen into sin, I shouldn't pray, God, whatever you want to do in that situation, you do. I should pray, God, deliver, that from that, deliver them from that sin. Help them to turn away. Help them to repent. Help them to never do that again. Enable them by your spirit to do that, to repent, to walk away, to trust in you. We can pray specific prayers because John says when we pray according to God's will we can have confidence that we already will receive it pray confidently church if we know that it's God's will that believers are sanctified that they turn away from sin then don't pray wishy-washy prayers about that pray specific prayers if we know that it's God's will that others would come to faith in Jesus Don't pray wishy-washy prayers. Pray specific prayers. Pray that God would do it. Pray that he would use you to lead them to, to faith in Jesus. Pray confidently. That's what John wants believers to do. He says we know of the eternal reality that waits us, eternal life. Pray confidently. Pray knowing that God hears us. Pray knowing that he will answer your prayers. And then John seems to shift course here. And we get to verse 18. And here's where our confidence comes from. Our confidence comes through knowing. This is the second blank on the listening page. Confidence comes through knowing. Option B. I read the, the, the book of 1 John back towards the beginning of the year just in like a reading plan. And I remember thinking when I got to the end, John says we know a lot. I read through the whole thing all in one sitting, didn't take super long. But when I got to the end, I kept thinking, John kept saying we know a whole lot. And so I went back, and I don't have the little notebook that I jotted it down in, but I jotted down all the instances where John says, and we know, or by this we know, and I don't remember the count because I don't have my little notebook, but it's a lot. If you look back and just read 1 John from start to finish and just notice all the times he says, we know, you're gonna be blown away. And he, he finishes his letter by saying it three more times. Look at verse 18, how he starts. We know, verse 19, we know, verse 20, and we know. John wants Christians, those who are following Jesus, to be confident. Confidence doesn't come through just how you feel. Confidence comes through what you know. Babe Ruth knew that he was a power hitter. He knew he could hit a ball over the outfield fence. So he had confidence that he could do it again. That was his 10th World Series. It was not his first rodeo. 
John wants us as Christians to be confident, not because we feel confident, not because we feel like we're, we're, we're so empowered, we're so gifted by the Holy Spirit, we can do whatever. God, uh, John wants us to be confident because we know what is true, because we know what Jesus has taught us, because we know the reality. Confidence comes through knowing. So what's this first thing that we know? Verse 18, and we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is not the first time that John has talked about knowing that those who are born of God don't keep on sinning. He has said this before. John Stott said concerning this, It's not that the believer can never slip into acts of sin, but rather that he does not persist in it habitually or live in it. Those who are believing in Jesus do not live in continual sin. It's incompatible with following Jesus and living in sin. Look back at chapter three. I remember preaching this again uh, a few weeks ago and, and highlighting all these times where John is emphasizing this exact point. Chapter three, starting in verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse nine, he's gonna say it again in case you missed it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I think John is trying to get a point across to us. If we are followers of Jesus, we cannot live in habitual sin. We cannot if we are following Christ. And here's why he says that is. He said in chapter three, because God's seed abides in him. Because God has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. So because he is dwelling inside of us, it is not possible for us to continue living in a pattern of sin. But he says it here in a slightly different way. Verse 18, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. He's talking about Jesus He's talking about the one who came, the one who was born and took on flesh and became just like you and I, who lived a perfect life, who never once sinned, who never once disobeyed, and he perfectly kept every aspect of the law. He went to the cross on our behalf. He died the death that we deserve so that we, by believing in him, would have the righteousness that he rightly earned by his perfect obedience, by his sinlessness, he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. That should give you 
confidence. If you are believing in Jesus, you can't keep on sinning because Jesus is protecting you. The evil one cannot touch you. The next affirmation, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now this is an interesting uh, situation that he's kind of presenting to us. He just said that you and I can't continue in sin because Jesus protects us and the evil one can't even touch us. That is a great encouraging reality. But then he says on the flip side, we know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This whole world that we live in, the one that we're so discouraged by so often, the one that seems so anti-God and anti-Christian, you know why it's that way? Because they're lying in the grip of the evil one. Notice he doesn't say they're struggling to try and get out of the grip of the evil one. He says they're lying contently there. The world probably doesn't even realize that it is in the grip of the evil one. But it is. So church, you and I should not be surprised when the world acts like it hates believers. When the world acts like it hates Christians. When the world acts like it hates God. Don't be surprised by that. John is saying that's just a simple reality about life. But know that even though the whole world lies in his grip, you and I are safe. And he can't touch us. He can't touch us. He cannot even lay a finger on you because Jesus is protecting you. That's encouraging. Man, what a way to close out a small little letter, right? The whole world is in the grip of the evil one, but he doesn't even have the power to even touch you. Then in verse 20, he says, and this is perhaps the greatest of all the affirmations, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. John wants us to know that Jesus has come to us. Look back at chapter one. Notice how John starts this letter. I remember preaching this as well and making a big point about this. The first four verses. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. He's saying the life has come to us. It's here. We heard it with our ears. We saw it with our eyes. We touched it with our hands. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things that our joy may be complete. John, from the very beginning of this little letter, is reminding his readers, Jesus has come. 
Jesus has come to us. He came from God. He came to us. We are witnesses of it, and we are now proclaiming what we have heard to you. And now he ends by saying, and we know that the Son of God has come, and not only has he come, but he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Notice that four-letter word, true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the what? The true God and eternal life. John is saying, y'all, we know that Jesus came to us. That is not a made-up story. I get confused with fiction and nonfiction. I'm going to stay out of that one. That is not a made-up fairy tale that just makes you feel good every Christmas time. Okay, that is real. That happened. He came from God. He came here to us. And not only did he just come, he gave us understanding so that we can know him who is true. He is true. He really is who he says he is. He really is the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He says, and not only so that we can know him, but that we are in him. His life is our life. When we become a believer, the reason that we have this promise of eternal life is because we know that God is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. And so if he is eternal, and if we, by believing in Jesus, are in him, then we also are in that eternal life. Our life will never end. It will not. Our life on this earth will. Our existence will continue with God forever, and we will be with him for all eternity. He says, we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. Now, why do you think he's so concerned with saying, this is true, this is true, this is true? Because there are people who started out within the church and they're no longer walking with the church. They've turned away. They've turned to other things and they're trying to convince others to turn away with them as well. And so John ends with this, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Normally, these little epistles end with something like, may the grace of our Lord be with you, amen. John says, little children. Again, that endearing way to respond to people or to address people. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, what is an idol? An idol is something that's not true. An idol is something that's not real. John is making a clear distinction here. We know God. We know Jesus who came from God. He really did come. That is true. He is God. That is true. He is the true God. He gave us understanding so that we can know him and that we are in him. He says, now keep yourselves from idols. Now we know, he said in verse 18, that everyone who is born of God is protected by Jesus. Jesus protects us. The evil one can't even touch us. But he also says, keep yourselves from idols. We know that God keeps us 
He protects us. But there's also an encouragement and a command to keep ourselves. You don't have to turn there. I mean, it's really just like two pages. You can turn there. But if you turn over to the, to the book of Jude, you see this same thing. Jude verse 20. Sorry, verse 20, 21. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. But then he also says in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now, and forever. Jesus keeps us, but we also must keep ourselves. Are you confident in Christ this morning? Are you confident that what he has done for you is sufficient? That he is keeping you? That he is keeping you for eternal life? And at the same time, are you keeping yourself? Are you keeping yourself from idols, from things that aren't true? From going after things that are only going to lead to death and destruction? John says, little children, Jesus is going to keep you. But you also keep yourselves. Keep a close eye on yourself. We, we have confidence that when we pray, when we ask for things in God's name, he will do it if it's asked according to his will. We can have confidence as believers because we know the truth, because Jesus has revealed that to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage in 1 John that we are able to look at today. What a beautiful truth that because of you, we can have confidence. Confidence in eternal life. Confidence in knowing that whatever we ask in your will, we have. And confidence knowing that you are the one true God and that we are in you. God, I pray this morning that as we leave and go about our day, as we go about our week, Help us to be confident Christians, not arrogant, but confident because of our Savior. We pray everything in his name. Amen.